This is Mike Levitt, a co-founder of the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative. Our nation is faced with two very important, but sometimes competing priorities. We have a duty to provide the best possible health care for every patient, but we must also remain competitive in a global marketplace. That's what value-based care is all about. Our challenge is to create a uniquely American system of health care. Truly, we're in a race to make value work. Welcome to the Race to Value, a weekly podcast hosted by Dr. Eric Weaver and Daniel Chipping of the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative. The ACLC is a nonprofit organization focused on accelerating industry readiness for success in value. With its competency-based framework for health value, the ACLC is working with healthcare organizations all over the country to create the workforce of tomorrow. Come join Eric and Daniel as they engage the executives, clinicians, and entrepreneurs who are leading this race to value. Race to Value listeners, this week we have on our show Dr. Terry Knapp, founder, director, and chief medical officer of CareSpan Holdings Incorporated. Dr. Knapp has a storied 50-year record of achievement in healthcare and in business. His company, CareSpan, provides comprehensive integrated digital healthcare, clinic-in-the-cloud solutions by creating unfettered access to access to care for the underserved with an emphasis on the care of chronic illness. Outside of his entrepreneurial success, he's a Stanford University trained U.S. board certified surgeon. He's delivered both primary medical care and reconstructive surgery care to to native peoples around the world for 50 years, including members of the Yurok and Hupa tribes in California, Huchitol and Cora tribes in Mexico, indigenous people in Africa, Peru, Ecuador, Samoa, Nepal, Lesotho, and Botswana, Africa, and Haiti. Over the past two and a half years, he's been invited to discuss healthcare delivery with various people, healthcare administrators, CEOs, nurses, community health representatives, and doctors, and on a number of reservations in the Great Plains region and in Minnesota, twice visited health facilities in North Dakota and in South Dakota. He's had long discussions with the Great Plains Tribal Chairman's Health Board. He's a friend and advisor, a leader in Indigenous health, Gene Thin Elk, who has been well-known throughout the region by both tribes and academic community. This episode is going to be on the healthcare plight of Native Americans. While Dr. Terry Knapp hasn't worked with the IHS and he hasn't been in that system, he's not Native American, he has a lot of insights to share with you all today about the systemic issues in the Indian health system and what we can do to, to, to make the system better. Yeah, Eric, I think our listeners are going to appreciate this episode. Dr. Knapp's developed a strong sense of the health problems and impediments to better health care that afflict Native Americans. 
And he, he's here today to share his views with our listeners to raise awareness for their plight, the plight of all Indigenous peoples in our country who are receiving substandard care. And there are some really emotional and difficult moments in this interview. And as he discusses some of the failures that were promised by the government more than 100 years ago. And he'll, you'll hear him describe American Indians that are dying a slow and agonizing death. And their land or reservation is really uh, akin to a concentration camp. And they're treated as third-class citizens by receiving medical care that's killing them. He talks about the bureaucracy of the Indian Health Service, the failure of the IHS to provide good enough doctors, the lack of choice by patients, the lack of respect for Native American ways by a system that ignores their culture. And he discusses denial of access to modern medical care and methods of care that, and posits that the Indian health system actually makes them sicker by exacerbating psychological trauma and socioeconomic challenges associated with their physical imprisonment. And it's evidenced, we see it in rates of substance abuse and mental illness. Really the inhumane treatment that he's observed firsthand has made him speak out about what he sees as a slow moving but progressive bureaucratic genocide of our indigenous peoples. Again, I can't uh, stress how important the conversation is today. Well, Daniel, this is an important episode, and it reminds me of the Native American phrase, Matakua Awasan, which means all my relations. And it's said at the end of every prayer in the Lakota Nation and reminds us at all times to honor all of our relations, past, present, and future. And this transcends our human relatives and includes our relation to all of creation, the water, the plants, the animals, and, and the creator. Indigenous people think intergenerationally as well, and they honor those in the past, present, and future. And that way of thinking brings their ancestors and the unborn into life, into a living generational framework. And it's what I ask all of you to consider when listening to this episode and thinking about value-based care. How can we consider all of our relations, which includes Native Americans who have suffered irreparable harms from a deeply flawed healthcare system. We must do better to serve indigenous peoples of our country. And I hope this episode is able to raise awareness for the plight of the indigenous healthcare crisis. So let's go ahead and hear from Dr. Terry Knapp as he talks about this important issue on this week's Race to Value. Dr. Terry Knapp, welcome to the Race to Value podcast. It's so amazing to have you on. I mean, you've had a storied career in medicine as a, a plastic surgeon. You're a thought leader, entrepreneur, humanitarian. You know, I know we're going to talk about the healthcare plight of the American Indians uh, based on some of your interactions and prior experience and, and working with that marginalized community. But before we get into the, that topic, I, I would love for you to share a little bit more about your background for our listeners. And of course, we want to hear about your work at CareSpan. I'm pleased to uh, do that. And thank you for having me on the program today. My history in medicine goes back a very, very long way to when I was 14 years old, raised on a little farm in New Hampshire. And one of our chickens, one of our laying hens, became very ill with a mass in her neck. And I pulled out an old animal husbandry book that was uh, laying around in the basement of our farmhouse and determined that maybe an operation would save her. So I took her down to our dank, dark basement with a single overhead bulb, prepped her neck, 
used a razor blade, opened her throat in two dimensions, removed the obstruction in her esophagus, sewed her back up in layers, and three days later, she was back in the yard laying again. And from that moment on, I determined to be a surgeon. So that was my initiation to medicine. And it took me to the University of Florida, where I graduated from the College of Medicine, and uh, then interned in the inner city hospital, Harborview Medical Center in Seattle, University of Washington, and then went to Stanford for six years of plastic surgery training. While I was there, my career diverted. There was an institution that had been initiated at Stanford called Interplast, which was the first of the organizations to take volunteer reconstructive surgery to developing countries. And we began with Central America and Latin America. And the year after that organization was formed, I arrived as a first year resident and really made it part of my life work because it was so rewarding to give to people who had no other recourse and be able to change an entire life within a 45 minute to one hour operation to restore children with cleft lips and cleft palates, give them the ability to speak, to look normal. Same with hand reconstruction, burn reconstruction, and so on. So it took me all over the world. And then in parallel with that, just before I went into US practice in the United States, my research led me to a discovery. And that discovery was the use of collagen, our structural protein that is common to all animals, and to use it as a tissue scaffold to build new tissue in the body, especially for minor defects that were very difficult to correct. And that resulted in my first patent and first company, which was called Collagen Corporation. And we took injectable collagen to the world and really created the dermal filler industry, which is well known in cosmetic treatments, but also artificial skin, bone out of an off-the-shelf container, and many other aspects of the use of collagen. I found myself, after 17 years of practice, asked to evaluate for Collagen Corporation a technology that would bring safe radiolucent breast implants for women, because the normal breast implant blocks mammography. So it in essence, takes away that distant early warning system that a mammogram can provide a woman with in terms of early detection of disease. The invention that I evaluated for the company was invented by two women radiologists in St. Louis, and it allowed mammograms to go right through the implant material because the filler was comprised of natural lipid that is the background material for every mammogram. I took that company to Europe because it was during the breast implant crisis and the FDA was not allowing even new investigational devices. And during that time, which resulted in a successful implant, there was a requirement for 
tracking and registering implantable medical devices for post-market surveillance and adverse event reporting. And the industry was having difficulty in tracking patients because there was a lack of identifiers on each implant. So another series of patents that accrued to me was the tagging of implantable medical devices with small passive transponders that with patient permission would allow a radio frequency reader device to learn the unique ID number of that implant as reflected in the microchip and put it into a global database where it could be accessed so that implant with patient permission could be tracked throughout its lifetime in the patient. And then I came back to the United States after that company was acquired and began not only consulting, but building other technologies. I retired from that for a year to do some writing. And that year I contracted cancer myself. I became a patient with prostate cancer. And I found that in the United States, we have a system that is not very good for patient transparency. So I created my own pathway, my own journey through the maze of healthcare. And during my recovery, I vowed to bring my experiences to bear to create a clinic in the cloud, an integrated clinic of digital components using medical information and communications technologies to be able to scale healthcare and deliver it to anyone in the world. The whole notion was to bring health equity to those great swaths of humanity that really have very poor access to quality medical care. And that's what I've been doing for the last 11 years. Well, Dr. Knapp, I, I really appreciate you sharing your background. You've had an amazing journey in healthcare and in business. And I, I know one unique aspect of your background is uh your experience and in interfacing with the Indian health system. When we've been looking for uh, someone that has some knowledge of uh, indigenous healthcare to come on our podcast, there's just such a, a humanitarian issue and a crisis at hand right now. I mean, and we've seen it just in recent times with COVID-19 infection and fatality rates in the United States. Uh, the Navajo Nation had a COVID-19 death rate of more than any U.S. state, you know, Alaskan Nation. Native people are three and a half times more likely to be diagnosed with coronavirus. They're four times more likely to be hospitalized. 35% of Native Americans who died from COVID-19 were under 60. And that's just such a, a disparity when you compare these indigenous groups with the white population. And then you just have some of the just the financial barriers that that we see in Indian health services. I mean, the there was a 2017 report that showed they spent three thousand three hundred and thirty-two dollars per capita, and you know we're used to seeing you know public health spending in upwards of ten to eleven thousand dollars in other programs per capita. You know, and then we just have all the different cultural and systemic barriers, everything from having to speak uh, different dialects and languages, and issues with sanitation and plumbing, and and then we have this tragic backstory of assimilation of the American Indian in our culture and some of the wrongs that we've had, like the on the nineteen. 
seventies with native American women, even experiencing uh, forced sterilization. And then you have food deserts, alcoholism, behavioral health, and so on. We're going to go into just some specific questions in a little bit, but I just wanted to ask you, as we kind of frame up this conversation on this issue with our listeners, can you explain maybe a little bit about your background and how you came to know a little bit more about the the plight of indigenous peoples and some of the systemic flaws that we have in, in that particular health system? Let me simply recount for you some of the early experiences I had with Native American populations and how I came back to it many years later. When I was a resident at Stanford, my department, the Department of Plastic Surgery there, was extraordinarily global in perspective and humanitarian in approach. And one of the things that I had the opportunity to do was to volunteer on weekends, maybe once a month, and fly with a group of flying doctors to go to far northern California and treat the Hoopa and Yurok Indians there by delivering primary care. And that was a learning experience because it was my first real exposure to the Native American in his native environment. And the hospitality and the respect that I was shown stayed with me. Now, over the years after I finished my training at Stanford, I focused on countries outside the United States because before we would go outside the United States to deliver reconstructive surgery, we completely surveyed the U.S. to determine if our own population was covered. And in fact, it has been by multiple agencies. So if a child is born with a deformity in this country, we have many agencies that will cover the cost and assemble the teams necessary to provide the care. Not so in much of the world. So after many, many years of dealing with disadvantaged peoples in Mexico and the rest of Central America, in Peru, in Ecuador, in Colombia, in Chile, in Botswana, Lesotho, South Africa, Nepal, Polynesia. It wasn't until about nine years ago that I met a woman in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, who is a nurse practitioner, PhD nurse, who came from a Mennonite family in the Dakotas. And the Mennonites, as you know, are rather pacifist. And her family was saved in the early days of pioneering by the Lakota Sioux. And they lived side by side with those tribes for generations. And my nurse friend, who is now our chief nursing officer at Kersman, whose name is Joellen Kerner and is in the Hall of Fame, Citizens Hall of Fame, in South Dakota for her contributions to her state community. She introduced me to a man named Jean Thin Elk, who was an adjunct faculty member at South Dakota State University, and I struck up a friendship. I had worked with shaman and with other, what we would call traditional native healers in developing countries and developed a great respect for them and the influence they had on their patients. And I asked Gene in our very first conversation, and he said, you need to understand that we Indians 
view the world very different than you white Westerners. We are not the central components of nature. We are but one with nature and just a component of it. And we respect all other components, but we do not conquer nature, we live with nature. And he said, we take the same approach to our injured warriors. He said, traditionally, when a warrior came back from battle, the community would gather around that young warrior and have a ceremony. And that ceremony would dissipate the scars of battle. And he was talking about the mental scars of battle. Basically, he was talking about PTSD. PTSD is not something new. It's lived with humankind since as long as war has lived with humankind and conflict. But he described the support of the community as really a cure in many, many instances. That taught me a whole lot. From there, I explained to him what we were doing, and he offered to introduce me to the chairman, and Native American chiefs are now called chairman of their various tribes. And there are 18 tribes in the Sioux Nation, in the Dakotas, Nebraska, parts of Minnesota. And I was invited to sit at the council table of the 18 tribal chairmen in order to share my views of how modern medicine could be brought to the tribe using virtual technologies such as we had developed. But it was eye-opening for me because the chairman of the chairman, a man named John Yellowbird Steele, who is the chairman of the Pine Ridge Reservation, recounted horrendous stories. Two weeks before, seven young women high school students between the ages of 14 and 17 in a one-week period had committed suicide. One of the girls who had committed suicide, her mother was dead from an overdose. Her father was an alcoholic, and she was responsible for his care. She had come home from school. She had cooked him dinner. He came in. The dinner was not satisfactory, so he beat her. He never once said to her, happy birthday. It was her birthday. And so she killed herself to escape what she had to live in. Another young child, four years old, died after being locked in a closet for four days while his parents were high on methamphetamine. He then discussed the universal problem among the tribes of the cartels from Mexico, their influence migrating north to bring drugs into the reservations. And there are many, many, many stories like this. Dr. Knapp, wow, what a sobering introduction to this topic and this conversation, this important conversation. I'd like to start out by discussing what you've addressed or identified as a major problem that the Native American population faces, and it's insufficient access to care. We don't have enough doctors. There are not enough therapists. Doctors who do serve on the reservation actually leave. They're not supported. They're not paid well. They're viewed as expendable. You write, they're temporary. They don't develop lasting relationships with patients because of these things. And because there's so few of them, they experience severe burnout. And there's even problems with credentialing. I'd like to understand more about 
the challenges that we need to be aware of as far as the insufficient access to care and what can be done about that? Well, you raise one of the essential elements of bringing care, and that is having providers willing to deliver the care. And the problem, as you suggest, has been the lack of providers willing to live and work under reservation circumstances. Think about it if you were a young doctor, and especially if you had a family. There's no amenities. It is a very, very hard existence. And there's a level of distrust that has been magnified over the last 150 years because the promises have not been kept. Just as an illustration, when I was sitting around that council table that I told you about with 18 tribal chairmen, there was a representative from Washington, D.C. and the Indian Agency sitting in the room. And that person was asked to approach the council table and a seat was provided for him. And I thought I had gone back 150 years in time. I've read a lot of Western novels and seen a lot of Western movies in my life. And here was a group of chiefs berating Washington's representative and telling him what or be he better do and go back and extract from the great white father, so to speak. It was as if nothing had changed over the last 150 years in terms of the grievances that I heard. So that is a microcosm of what a doctor or other provider faces when they go on a reservation. Now, let me give you an instance that I experienced personally at the Cheyenne River Reservation in Northwestern South Dakota. I went to a facility there, which was beautiful, $30 million outpatient clinic with several inpatient beds. And I went there to demonstrate how the CareSpan delivery system could bring providers in from the outside virtually and utilize various instrumentation to make diagnoses, to deliver treatment and follow-up and so on and so forth. Now, there is something in the Native American healthcare system that allows certain tribes who can demonstrate that they can manage the finances, what is called a 628 provision to allow them to determine their own care and from where it's derived, as opposed to Indian Health Service, which is under the Department of the Interior. So this was a partial 628 tribe, the Cheyenne River tribe. And I was shunted to the side of their outpatient clinic. And the first thing I asked was, can I have access to your internet, to your Wi-Fi? And they said, we don't have any. And I said, what do you mean? This is a $30 million state-of-the-art facility I'm in. And I was told, you don't understand. You see, on the other side, which is the IHS side of the facility, they have gigabit internet through fiber optic. And I said, well, why can't you share that? They said, you don't understand. We are not allowed to share the resources. And I said, but it's the same patients. You're treating the same exact patients. Does it matter? 
I successfully was able to do it because I had a personal hotspot on me with my iPhone. And that brought in, using 4G, brought in enough broadband to actually deliver the care through our system. But the point is that there is something very, very amiss when it comes to the bureaucracy that will not share simple in this case, potentially life-saving resources. That is a problem of bureaucracy, and it's rampant. Well, Dr. Knapp, uh, you mentioned talking about the technology. I can't help but think about the outdated and really unusable electronic medical record system that the Indian Health Service has. As I understand, the IHS uses a a record-keeping system and health record. I believe it's called RPMS, Resource and Patient Management System. And this is a system that was first created in the late 70s and early 1980s. And it's just been a system that's had different add-ons bolted onto it. It doesn't have the level of architectural modernization that you would anticipate with some of the health record systems that are being used today. The system doesn't have an interface that creates interoperability with other modern records systems that doesn't support continuity of care. And, you know, this is really um, a flaw that can hurt people and uh, it really compromises care and may even cause fatalities in some instances. And I just wanted to learn more about what you observed of their electronic health record system and what needs to be done to, to fix that problem. RPMS kills people. That's a very drastic statement. But I think it can be documented. You're right. It was first it began to be developed back in the late 70s. I think the last major overhaul was like in 1982. If you look at simple things like creating a basic healthcare record or mapping a diabetes treatment, the myriad manuals for one simple task, I have seen a manual run to 328 pages. Nobody can use it. That's impossible. However, the IHS put out a request for proposal for a grant that they were letting several years ago. And the grant was to bring telehealth and telemedicine to the reservations. And we applied for that grant. One of the stipulations of the grant was that whatever recording system was to be used had to interoperate with RPMS. I don't know of any modern EHR that could possibly interoperate with RPMS. Now, if you extrapolate, let's assume that a medical record for a tribal member is held within RPMS. And that tribal member is traveling outside the reservation and they get in an automobile accident and they go to an outside hospital, chances are they will not be cared for. There is no way to interoperate, no way to share the information in their tribal record, and there is virtually no way for the treating hospital to be compensated for the care. This is why equity in healthcare is actually actively denied to the Native American because of the underlying roadblocks with bureaucracy, not just RPMS, but many other aspects of it. For example, every American Indian has to have a tribal ID number. Do you know what they call the tribal ID number 
among themselves, they call it their Auschwitz number. Now, I'm going to say something here that people might think is controversial, but I stand by the statement. And that is the syndrome in people who are prisoners or prisoners of war for long periods of time. There's a syndrome called the Stockholm syndrome. You may have heard of it. It's a syndrome in which the prisoner never can accept freedom because of the dependency that has arisen between prisoner and the imprisoning entity, the guards, so to speak. In this case, I'm sad to say it's the United States of America and our federal government that has created the Stockholm Syndrome that will not even let Native Americans become in any way self-determinant and has robbed them of their identity, has robbed them of their culture, has robbed them of their diet, has robbed them of every aspect of their way of life. And we don't even let them assimilate into our culture like others have who are not of our culture and done so successfully because they're in prisons called reservations. Dr. Knapp, I'd like to further understand another one of the failures that the Native Americans are experiencing, and that's the failure to provide choices, healthcare choices. We think back to the treaties that were signed with the U.S. government and the Native Americans, and one part of that treaty was that healthcare would be paid for by the U.S. government in perpetuity. And since that time, and you've mentioned earlier in our conversation that there have been many hospitals and clinics built, and from the sounds of it, very fine facilities that they're able to build. But we still have poor care delivery. IHS is doing a poor job with its care delivery. Uh, Outcomes are poor. I'm hopeful that you can share some enlightenment around the choice or limited choices the Native Americans have for accessing healthcare. They have no choice. They have to accept what is provided to them. There's no voucher where they could go off the reservation and get care in the private sector. And as you've pointed out, it's the rare clinician who wishes to live and work on a reservation. It's very, very bleak and dangerous. You made another observation, which I think is correct, and that is the IHS and the U.S. government is very good at building fine facilities. I've been impressed by that. They're terrible at delivering care. And you said another magic word just a moment ago. You used the word outcome. We in America, in my view, do a terrible job in terms of providing optimum outcomes for chronic disease. And chronic disease is rampant on the reservation. Diabetes is out of control. Mental and behavioral health is poor to non-existent in populations who have severe domestic violence, substance abuse problems, and other afflictions that could be classified as mental and behavioral health issues. There's no collaborative care, not that I've seen. And yet the generation optimization and management to outcome is something that's not really unique to reservations. I see it all over this country. It's one reason that we are focusing in the company that 
I founded 11 years ago, which is CareSpan, why we are focusing on the means to drive outcomes. And what that means is you have to start with a different philosophy. And the philosophy is you don't treat disease, you treat the whole person. And social determinants of health is a shorthand description of taking into account variables that affect the whole person, not only their family, their neighborhood, the level of things like crime, violence, the environment itself, air quality and on an asthmatic, for instance, diet, relationships, cultural support, communal support. It's often been said that one's health is more determined by your zip code than your genetic code. And there's a lot of truth in that. I'm sure you have heard of the blue zones around the world. There's between five and seven blue zones in which people in those zones live very significantly longer than other people in the world. Many well over 100 years of age, relatively disease-free, and they've been studied. And the factors that lead to that are diet and relationships, communal support, exercise, certainly, and a few other elements. It doesn't seem to be magic, but the combination has to occur. So if we are going to drive outcomes, rather than just paying for laissez-faire medicine, which fee-for-service does, we have to realign our economic thinking as well as our fundamental health care approach at the primary care level. So realigning economic incentives and digital health-enabled approaches to care allow us to create not what we call value-based care. <laughs> value-based care is kind of an interesting concept because no one can define value. It's subjective. It's difficult to measure. It's in the mind of the beholder. Outcome, on the other hand, is objective. It can be predetermined. It can be managed by active interventions and active approaches. It can be analyzed and it can be utilized to drive continuous improvement in a quality system approach to care delivery. But care delivery has to be systems engineering based to take into account the whole person. And the only way we can affect that with Native American populations is to take care of the whole person starting with the basics of where they live and how they live and under what circumstances they live. It's a complex subject. Well, Dr. Knapp, I, I could not agree more. And we uh, spend a great deal of time on this podcast talking about value-based care and health equity. And you mentioned the need to have a less of a reactive type of healthcare system, something that's more whole person oriented. And I mean, that's what I think is the spirit of the value-based care movement and the vehicle to which value-based care is being delivered in this country is through alternative payment models that are being promulgated by health and human services that include the accountable care organizations and other innovative payment models that's being put out by the CMS Innovation Center. Just to your point on whole person care and getting good outcomes, I mean, it's been demonstrated time and time again that having relationship-based 
tech-enabled, coordinated, whole-person, holistic care is really a driver of better patient engagement, better outcomes. And that care needs to be interdisciplinary where you have a team that's practicing to the fullest scope of their licensure and, and it's coordinated in a way that's meeting the patient where they are and addressing their needs. And when I think about indigenous populations, I mean, we, we talked earlier about some of the issues with substance abuse and mental health disorders. I mean, that's a prime example of where you could have a, a whole person care model where you have a psychologist on staff that's working with the primary care physician. And you know, if that person has diabetes and maybe they have an endocrinologist, but that it seems like we're dealing with constant fragmentation in our our own health system. And, and I think it sounds like it's doubly worse in the IHS. I'm a little bit hopeful, at least that, you know, COVID-19 can be a flashpoint for some of the systemic issues with health equity. I mean, I mentioned some of the COVID numbers earlier, but I just wanted to ask you if you could expound on your thoughts on value-based care, in particular, the you know, different mechanisms to which that can be delivered. If it's an ACO or a patient-centered medical home, how do you think the IHS should re-engineer their model to better optimize on efficiencies and improved outcomes and care delivery? And then what would you advise leaders and our federal government, how they should be looking at this issue in terms of health equity and, and the overall value-based care movement? Well, it, it's interesting. Let's talk for a moment about the definition of health equity. I like to be extraordinarily precise with words whenever I can, because definitions are the building blocks of solutions. So that's, that's why I take issue with the term value. I prefer outcome-based care rather than value-based care, because it's more certain, more specific, it's measurable, it's objective, you can manage toward it, and you can utilize it to drive continuous improvement. I don't know what value means. Value means very different things to very different people with very different points of view. But having said that, we get into the word equity. What exactly does equity mean? To me, equity is adding value to an asset that one possesses. So your house is an example. You fix up your house, you remodel it, you make your yard nice. You build equity because it increases in value. Well, with healthcare, what does equity mean and who's responsible for building it? Here's what I think it means on a population health basis. If you look at a sovereign entity like a nation, the asset that that society has is its people. And it's been shown over and over again that the overall health of a population really adds to the value of a society its productivity, its happiness quotient, if you will. So health equity is building the value by increasing the population health. Now, how do you measure population health? Well, probably the most convenient and overall reflective way to describe the health of any society is longevity. What is the average life expectancy for a person living, say, in the United States of America? Well, the sad truth is that it has been declining precipitously for a number of years now. I believe the United States, which ranked in the top 20 a couple of decades ago, is now down to, I believe, number 68th in the world in terms of national life expectancy. 
Yet we spend, as you pointed out, nearly $11,000 per year per capita on healthcare. Now, Cuba, and I, I've worked alongside Cuban physicians in Latin America on several occasions and in Haiti, is not a place that most Americans would want to live. It spends less than $500 per year per capita on healthcare. But its life expectancy, last time I checked, was in the top 10 in the world. How does one explain that? Anyway, we're not going to explain that today, but let's talk about value-based care. I believe that technology can enable value-based care, or as we prefer to call it, outcomes-based care, if it is properly integrated to drive a process. And the process is a systems engineering process. We call it P4 medicine for short. We didn't coin that term. That was coined out of by Leroy Hood and Charles Alfred. Dr. Leroy Hood is the head of the Foundation for Systems Biology in Seattle, and Charles Alfred is his counterpart on the European Foundation for Systems Biology. And they point out that living organisms consist of many systems and they are impacted by systems, such as environment and culture and so on. And if we're going to take care of the individual in a whole person care type of approach, that process of systems engineering needs to be applied. So that is what we have initiated at CareSpan. In the first place, we've built a digital ecosystem. Let me describe its components very briefly. There are five essential components. The first is monitoring. Monitoring of an individual, which can begin in utero and go all the way to death. And that requires the accumulation of many terabytes of data, from genomic data to microbiomic, to proteomic, and the data flows that result from the metabolic processes of our bodies. And we're starting to do that. We have remote patient monitoring now actually being in its rudimentary forms being paid for by CMS. So monitoring is a foundational element of the digital ecosystem. Care delivery, the ability to deliver care not only in person, but anywhere in the world with an internet connection. And by delivery of care, I mean respecting the process of healthcare delivery, which is full evaluation of the patient that then allows the creation of a diagnosis which in turn allows the formulation of a treatment plan and its execution. And then the fourth element is follow-up to adjust as necessary. So all technology must be subordinate to those basic elements of medical care delivery, regardless of specialty. The third component is patient engagement. Putting the patient as an equal participant on the playing field, engaging them in their own care, Having them sign a contract for care. You remember the old contract with America in 1994? was very successful. The fourth element is care continuity services. You mentioned everyone practicing to the top of their licensure or the top of their training and capabilities. So you can't ask medical doctors and nurse practitioners to arrange transportation to counsel according to the optimal diet, and so on and so on and so forth. But a care continuity center can do many things. It can triage notifications and alerts from monitoring systems. 
and it can fill in all those care gaps that occur between provider visits with the patient. And then the fifth component is analytics. And that comes kind of in two forms. Predictive analytics, which can occur from the data flows from monitoring and outcome-based analytics, both at the individual and the population basis to drive continuous improvement in the overall process. Thus, medical care on a global basis gets better and better and better. Now, when you put all that together, the shorthand for it is P4 medicine. And that's what Dr. Hood and Dr. Alfred described, P4 medicine, medicine that is predictive, preventive, personalized, and participatory, and drives outcomes. And that process is available to us now as a society if we create that ecosystem and exercise it as it should be. Dr. Knapp, we've hinted at this. We've talked about equitable care. We've talked about the challenges that the Native Americans are being faced with. You've made some comments about being culturally competent or providing culturally competent care is the phrase that I'm going to use. When we think about the culture and the traditions that Native Americans have, they're culturally diverse, as you write, from tribe to tribe, definitely from other Americans. You talked about earlier how they're different from the white American who oftentimes has a me or an individual mindset where the Native American is more connected to community and nature. And they've got different healing methods and rituals that are important to them. And culturally competent care is a a competency or organizational capability that we identified a few years back when we created our Accountable Care Atlas, the competencies that organizations need to succeed in value-based care. And I'd just like to understand more about your observations in the failure to involve Native healers and cultural transitions in the healing process. Further, you've talked about the doctors who work there, who are kind of transient temporary providers. And one of the things we've learned about equitable care and the right care is oftentimes, you know, people want to be represented or they want their population or themselves to be represented by their caregiver and be able to connect personally and deeply with that individual and and know that they're understood by that individual. And it sounds like that's a piece that's missing. And, And so the, the trust, another issue that you've mentioned, it's missing from the care paradigm that exists right now. It is. And there are several ingredients that have to be brought into play in order to realize what's missing. So in the first place, before I got old and no hair and hopefully accumulated a little wisdom, I thought the sun rose and set in the scientific methodology that underpins Western medicine. But there's so much we don't know. And I found that I learned more when I kept an open mind and exercised a level of humility that in my early years I found difficult to bring forth. But when I did, I found that the native healers had a lot to teach us. Not only that, I found that if you were willing to listen to them and observe them and respect them, that you could really develop a very good working relationship with them because they realize they don't have all the answers either. That was eye-opening for me. And I first experienced it in Africa in the 70s, and then quite a few times in Latin America. So that's number one. 
Number two is we have to align the economic incentives around the reimbursement of those who deliver healthcare. So from a primary care perspective, in medical school, we're taught to put ourselves out of business. Remember, all a doctor has to sell is his or her time. And unfortunately, so many have been whipsawed into the debilitating, see a patient every seven minutes, which denies us the ability to spend sufficient time with individual patients according to their needs. The reason that I like outcome-based care and its reimbursement that is changed from fief to service to risk-based capitation and we can talk a little more about the risk-based capitation notion. It, in fact, aligns economic incentive with work incentive because ultimately a primary care doctor's objective is to put himself out of business on a fee-for-service basis. So if all my patients are doing well because of my efforts, I don't get paid because there's no clinical encounters or few enough of them. On the other hand, If I'm capitated on a risk-adjusted basis for patients and I do a good job, I'm going to get more time to spend with my patients that do need it, and I'm going to make a decent living as well. So I believe that the only way to create a sustainable healthcare paradigm is to pay for outcome-based care in a risk-adjusted, capitated fashion and charge those primary care clinicians with developing a referral network on behalf of the patients they care for, of specialists and hospitals and other facilities like laboratories and imaging facilities to get the most cost-effective yet high-quality service at the lowest price on behalf of the patients that they serve, or be part of an organization that does so. Because if you take fee-for-service care on a primary care basis, you can extrapolate that to the consumption of the entire GDP of the planet. And we're in fact, we're doing that in the United States. We're trying to curtail it by limiting access to primary care. And many people do not want to go into primary care because it's become dissatisfying. Yet we see our per capita cost, not only now the highest in the world, but ever increasing. So I kind of rest my case with the consumption of the GDP. There's great potential for solutions to deliver care to the disadvantaged and the underserved using telecommunications technology, along with medical information technology. And in fact, the FCC and Congress has provided billions of dollars worth of funding to bring broadband to the remote and the underserved in various areas of the United States. Some areas have taken more advantage of it than others. In fact, Alaska has a much, much better connectivity, even to the most remote areas than in the Dakotas, for example. And there also have been grants to bring telemedicine on board. I don't believe that they've been used very effectively. And when you get the kind of barriers that I described on the Cheyenne River Reservation, where there was gigabit internet, 
next door to nothing in the same healthcare delivery building that speaks volumes to the red tape and bureaucratic impediments. So Dr. Knapp, I, you know, I was just thinking you referenced earlier the Mexican drug cartels and the the infiltration of these substances, these highly dangerous and addictive and destructive drugs that are available to tribal members. I, I know that methamphetamines are probably the worst, but then you also have cocaine and heroin and of course alcohol that all contribute to this vicious cycle of abuse where you have First, the abuse of the substance and then the abuse of family members, especially children, which causes great depression, despair and suicide in Native American population. And it just really seems like we have a problem here where there's a failure to address the drug predators who prey on American Indians. And this is causing a massive public health crisis. I just wanted to I wanted to get your comments on what you've observed and maybe what you think what we should do as a country to uh, ameliorate this terrible situation. Well, it is a situation that is not confined to the reservation. Some Americans, and Native Americans are Americans, they're American citizens, have a need to express their denial of their existence by abusing mind-altering substances. And those that profit from it, in many respects, in my view, have a twofold motive. One is certainly to make money but the other is to undermine our society. Make no mistake, drugs like fentanyl, methamphetamine, heroin are weapons of mass destruction. And they're being imported in this country right under our nose every day, all day. We have a society that's being assaulted in a number of ways now that is disheartening. In many respects, we've, we've lost the idea that is America as a country in which anybody who is at all self-motivated, desiring to improve their lot in life, can gain the opportunity to do so. As that slips away, hope gets lost. And blotting out one's existence is a temporal, earthly solution. What to do about it? That is the pregnant question. I wish I had an answer. But I do believe that we can chip away at it at many levels, including improving the overall health of our population, which has slipped. It has slipped considerably. All you have to do is look at old movies and just look at the physiognomy of people. We have an obesity epidemic among children. We have the most expensive disease in the world, diabetes mellitus, running rampant. Other countries are experiencing the same thing. Mexico being a case in point, Philippines where we're very active being another case in point, India another, it's not confined to just the United States. So we have a challenge before us in the medical profession and all those associated with the medical profession to find solutions. And they're not as simple as taking a pill or a vaccination or anything else. It comes with taking care not only of bodies that are ill and minds that are ill, but a spirit that needs some recovery as well. I think if we can start with our population at large and bringing the same standard of care to our Native American population with respect to their culture, 
it would be a great life's work for those that are here now and those that come after us. Dr. Knapp, I could not agree more, and this has uh, been a, a very important interview for, for me and my own edification, just understanding some of the pertinent issues that affect indigenous populations in our country. And, you know, there's a great point to be made about, you know, are we creating systems of government bureaucracy that perpetuate inhumane treatment? And, and where do we get back to the the heart of uh, American healthcare, which is really all about compassion and alleviating suffering and finding ways to leverage technology and create more more equity and improve outcomes. So yeah, I commend you for your career in spending so much time and trying to create the meaningful disruptions needed to improve the lives of people in, in our country. And I just wanted to ask you as we wrap up our conversation today, just if you could provide some parting thoughts about the state of American healthcare, maybe, and what our listeners should be thinking. Uh, we know we have listeners out there that are our leaders in industry and, you know, how should they be approaching the, the future of outcomes-based care and, and thinking about more patient-centeredness and how they transform their, their delivery models? Eric, I, I think that there is a window. And interestingly, what has opened that window is the SARS-CoV-2 virus and COVID-19. Because with a public health emergency came the relaxation of, in my opinion, archaic licensing laws, the ability to utilize telehealth and telemedicine to meet, reach people in remote areas. And in COVID, the remote area was into the home. I don't care if you were in downtown Manhattan, you were isolated by COVID-19. And the relaxation of archaic rules is one thing. Having leadership at a political level that transcends bipartisanship, and there are leaders out there that can do that, that will invite knowledgeable, can-do people to recommend changes to reimbursements and to the way in which healthcare is delivered using modern technology can go a long way toward improving the American healthcare system. If you read, in fact, what CMS is advocating, they are advocating much of what we talked about as potential solutions. The problem is that bureaucrats don't take care of patients, so they have to bring providers into that mix and patients into that mix and create laboratories, virtual laboratories in the community that can try new methods they can accumulate the data just like clinical trials and demonstrate with hard numbers what can be achieved. And I think if we create these loci of activities designed to create faster, better, cheaper healthcare, we can succeed at doing it. And the digital tools are there to allow us to achieve that now. Dr. Knapp, I, I can't thank you enough for joining us just for everything, your leadership and, and your uh, willingness to come on the show and uh, share some of your insights from a storied career. It's been an honor to, to spend time with you today. No, thank you all very much for having me. It was, uh, it was fun. I enjoyed it. Thank you, Dr. Knapp.